So welcome to the Rise of the Super Being. I'm Vanderson Pires, and today I'm gonna talk with Dr. Ian Gwyn Robson. Is that right? Huh? That's right. Yes. Gwyn Robson. Yes. Nice, Dr. Ian. It's a medical director of the Tiomanga Hospice in Loahat. Mm. So, Dr. Ian, first I just would like to give people a little bit of cue how we met. So, mm, sure. Almost two two years ago. Mm. I got an email from you mm. um, asking me about uh, if I could do a private lesson, teach you some basics about uh, mm. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And you had zero experience before, right? That's correct. And I, I zero. <laughs> and you was 50, 58 years old, That's right? right? That's right. And it was was really interesting. So we got together and we had we had the first lesson, and you know you wasn't sure about uh, mm. if that's that's mm. gonna be for me or not. Mm. So what's happened after after our session? Yeah, well, I decided I wanted to try martial arts that I'd never done before. Partly, I was um, checking with my physiotherapist. I've got a great physiotherapist, a guy named Gavin Cross, uh, Gavin Cross Physiotherapy, mm -hmm. and I wanted to increase my physical fitness level. And because when you hit fifty, your muscles tend to lose their strength and your fitness really drops off. You can kind of, I don't know, you can kind of coast through your 40s and then you hit 50 and you really have to do something serious about fitness. So I consulted with my physiotherapist about which martial art I should try. Now my daughter, my older daughter, um, has done Krav Maga for many years and my physio said, oh, mm, not so much, too many sort of joint injuries with Krav Maga. So it was his suggestion to try Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So that's when I just figured out to come to see you. Mm -hmm. So, and when I said to you, am I crazy to start Brazilian Jiu Jitsu first martial art ever at age 58, you said, no, I'm not crazy. So, yes. <laughs> so since then I manage twice a week. I go once a week to, um, um, Valley BJJ. Mm -hmm. What's with one of your affiliations yeah. as well? Yeah, yeah. With Norman. Cause I live in the hut. Mm -hmm. I live in Eastbourne and then once a week with Brian, uh, on Friday. And I must say, Part of the reason I like going to see Brian is because he's the same age as me. We were both born in the same year, uh -huh. 1959. Of yes. course, he's been doing this for 40 years. Uh -huh. Who knows how long he's been doing yeah. various <laughs> martial arts. Mm -hmm. But it's it's inspiring to see somebody, you know, same age as me. Yes, yeah. You know, who's still still rolling. So that's why I started and mm. have loved it and loved it. Uh, yeah, and has been you've has been an inspiration for for lots of people. Mm. So because we hear that quite a lot, you know, I hear mm. that quite a lot about ah, I'm too old to start mm. Uh, mm. something like that. Seems so. Um, it's of course it's a really physical mm. activity, mm. Um, but you're doing really well, by the way. So yeah. it has been has been almost Thank two you. years. Yeah. <laughs> And also, um, just to give people a little bit uh, idea about mm. uh, how we start as well mm. this conversation, how um, I, I start to know a little bit more mm. about you, about yourself, because we at the club a few years ago we start with some some live events, the rise of the super being, mm. and the intention with those live events is to bring people with good messages, with good um, stories, with good knowledge to share with mm. with my students, mm. with my academy, and also we open to the public mm. as well. So the name was The Rise of the Super Being Workshops, with the intention of 
train the emotional fitness, mm. the emotional mm. agility. And you came twice because mm. it was so interesting, so inspirational to hear what you do. Also, that was really special for me as well because after one of your sessions, uh, my wife, she decided to, to mm. become a volunteer to mm. the hospice. I think that's fabulous. Yeah. That's great. Great outcome. Yeah, it was super, super cool. So thank you so much for that. And, yeah. and again, thank you for your time to come here today okay. to, to share a little bit more about your experience and, and your expertise. So, Dr. Ian, uh, what's what's could you please explain to us what's palliative care and how did you choose to end up in this field? In this field. Palliative care is um, medical care, holistic care directed at people who have a life-limiting or a terminal illness. Okay. Um, I got into it in my early days of medical practice. Um, I was in general practice first in Canada for 10 years. And in my training, I had done heaps and heaps and heaps of pediatrics, expecting when I started in general practice that I have lots of children. And I did have lots of children in my, in my practice. But I took over a practice from a practitioner, retiring GP who was in his 70s, and practices age with the practitioner. So I inherited a practice that had lots of elderly patients, lots of geriatric patients. So I found I was doing lots of palliative care. I was doing lots of end-of-life care. Um, so I started to do the continuing education, the things that I needed to do, you know, courses and seminars and so on. And I found that I really, really enjoyed and really, really liked that kind of care. It's very, very rewarding care. It makes a huge difference uh, to the patient and to that family at the end of life. Um, what I do makes dying a little bit easier. It's not a difficult time of life, obviously, but it makes makes that phase, what I do, a little bit easier mm -hmm. uh, for the patient and the family. And it's very, very yeah, rewarding, like I said. Mm. Mm. In one of your, your talks, you, you explain uh, your views about uh, um, death, grief, and healing. Mm. It's not a medical issue. It's a community, it's mm. a social mm. issue. Could mm. you please explain a little bit more about yeah. your views on that? Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the individual patient is the one who is dying, and um, they are surrounded by their family. Uh, you know, everybody is involved. They're surrounded by their community, uh, you know, outside of their family. Everybody's... Um, wanting to help and support and that's what's that's what's the social sort of aspect of the social aspect of it um in my own um emotional work to support the work that i do because i am with dying people all the time i have used music uh, and reflecting reflecting about grief and death and healing using music and i've put together a compilation of Black American songs, um, and I, I used it in the presentation at, at Combat Room. I start with a gospel spiritual called Lonesome Valley. You've, you've got to go to the Lonesome Valley. You've got to go there by yourself. Nobody else can go for you. So it's a statement of the reality for a person who is dying. They're the ones who 
have to go to the Lonesome Valley. They have to go there by themselves. But the other truth that you learn is that that person's experience is embedded within their, you know, they're surrounded by their loved ones and they're surrounded by their, by their community as well. And that's what we do in palliative care. The patient is at the center, but we also care for the family that are around that patient. Mm -hmm. um, and I know, I think Emily's wanting to do the biography service. That's yes. one of the things she wants yeah. to do. Really, really, really important and therapeutic thing that uh, to, to sort of meet somebody, get their story, get their life story, put it into a, you know, form that, that they can read, that they can uh, pass on to their children or their loved ones in their family. Yeah, that's super interesting. Could really, you really important. Yeah, could you please explain a little bit more about that? Because for me, it was something completely new. I didn't know mm. Um, mm. The, the hospice offered this, mm. this, what do we call a service or what, what's that? The biography service. Yes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's just when throughout the life of a person, we, we go through developmental stages, you know, in infancy where everybody's familiar with the developmental stages of infancy and adolescence. There's certain things that, you know, you're trying to achieve in young adulthood. But development continues throughout the life cycle. And after the diagnosis of a terminal illness, there's also a developmental task. There's, there's things, that, you know, everybody has to do in preparation for death. And one of them is making sense of their life. Now, when I see patients, introduce them to hospice, I say one of the services we offer is a biography service. And people say commonly, oh, I've not done much in my life. You know, that wouldn't be very interesting. And at, then when they actually do do a biography at the end, they're really proud. They see their life story laid out. And they're like very proud and they actually realize they have accomplished things. They super have done cool. things. Super powerful. Very, very powerful. Mm. Very, very powerful thing. Mm -hmm. So that's, and that's a volunteer service. It, you know, in, at Mary Potter and at Teemanga, the biographers are trained and then supervised, mm -hmm. you know. So it's, you know, th there's, there's professional people who are helping with that. Mm. That's amazing. With that process. Um, you shared one of the stories with us as well at the, mm. the Rise of the Super Being, the mm. live workshop, about uh, um, this patient um, who everyone was taking care of in concern about moving this patient from, from the ambulance oh, yeah. because it was raining. Could, yes. you please, yeah. could you please tell us this story for us? Yeah, that was a... How do people find meaning and what, what are the meaningful experiences at the end of life? Okay, how can we predict them? We can't. This was an elderly gentleman who was at Wellington Hospital in the cardiology unit. He was in a small room. He had seven or eight children and grandchildren. Everybody wanted to be with him. Um, tiny room, not possible. So we decided that we would move, transfer him from Wellington Hospital to Mary Potter Hospice, which, as you know, is right across Mean Street. It's a one-minute drive. Ambulance transfer. Ambulance got to Mary Potter and drove up the drive and the covered part of the driveway, the covered entrance, was completely jammed with cars and there was no way it was going to take forever. So after a, not too long, we thought, oh, you know, even though it was pouring, pouring, pouring rain, decided to sort of open the back and 
uh, lift the patient out and just transfer him, you know, the, the other uncovered sort of entrance. Mm -hmm. Open the door, pull him out, and this guy wrapped up like this with a blanket felt the rain on his face, and he said, oh, that feels just beautiful. Oh. So in the end, <laughs> the rain on his face was the right thing. It was the perfect thing. It was the thing that made him realize he was not in hospital all, you know, airless and sterile, and it was reconnecting with nature. Yeah. Mm. That's, that's amazing. That's super cool. It's interesting. Um, one of my colleagues who works in Christchurch, uh, did part of her training in Darwin mm. in the Northern Territory of Australia and looking after a number of Aboriginal patients. And they, of course, mostly want to be in their own home. So there was a lot of um, transporting patients by air back to their remote parts of Australia. But some patients who were dying at the hospice in Darwin, they, they Aboriginal patients wanted to die outside, no matter what the weather was, no matter what. So their hospice is designed that the beds could just get pushed right outside wow. under the trees, under the stars. So I thought that was a really interesting sort of, it's not just Aboriginal patients. It could be anybody who really value that sort of, oh, to be outdoors, connect with. So how that works? So that the person can choose to go to stay at home instead of the hospice. How, how that works? We... Most people want to be at home. If you said to somebody, where would you like to be at the end of life when you died? Most people will say at home. Mm. More than 50% yes. will say at home. Um, that, to achieve that, requires help and support in many forms. Equipment stuff. I mean, often at the end of life, somebody needs a hospital-type bed, electric-type bed, because they're not mobile anymore. And caring for somebody at home who's not mobile and bed-bound it's just a whole lot easier if you've got a hospital-type bed. So one of the things we do is put hospital beds within a home. Other equipment things uh, can be real helpful. Um, also, to have the nursing support, so regular visits from nurses who are assessing what's going on and troubleshooting. And, you know, somebody's got pain, the nurse can help with the medication and whatever. Um, we do a lot of education and training. So we have a course for the carers of a dying person. We bring them into the hospice, four sessions, half a day each. We make sure the person who they're looking after at home is cared for to free them up to come into the hospice and address all of the concerns and anxieties that they have about caring for their loved one at home. From what I understand, day one, the family all want to know, the, 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 the caregivers all want to know what is dying going to look like. You know what am I? Can I? What can I expect at home? Good question. What's very dying? Question. What What's dying very looks like? Yeah, it's very variable, of course. But what we're trying to achieve is people getting just more and more. They do get more and more sleepy, more and more um, um, unresponsive. So they're not able to talk to you or uh, not opening their eyes earlier on not eating not drinking that's a natural part of what happens at the end of life um uh, yeah so getting at mobilizing getting around less eating and drinking less less and less conscious more and more sleepy breathing slows often you get um uh pauses in the breathing gaps in the breathing um you often get a pattern of breathing where there's there's a gap and then little tiny breaths and then bigger breaths and then little tiny breaths and then a gap 
and then little tiny breaths and then bigger breaths and then little tiny breaths and then a gap. And then eventually that gap just, there's just not another breath. Mm. The peripheral, the circulation gets sort of shut down. So somebody's feet, somebody's hands get colder and colder and the warmth retreats to sort of here. And then, you know, as the, the circulation stops, uh, um, skin, there can be changes in the way the skin looks. Death rattle is another thing that you hear, you read about, you hear about, it's that sort of, uh, noise of respiration at the end of life where somebody's not swallowing anymore because they're 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 unconscious and the normal sort of saliva and whatever's in the mouth you know um, yeah just makes that sort of death rattly sort of noise all of these are normal all of these are normal things and people um if it's explained what to expect the, the the none of it's a surprise you know and and people cope with it and recognize it and see the the changes and they know exactly what's happening wow so that's what we try to achieve mm -hmm. now of course people when they're dying can have pain can have nausea can't get confused whatever there are that's the that's my job that's the job of me and my team is to address those symptoms you know help get rid of those symptoms so that dying is peaceful for the person and for the family around that person because mm -hmm. that's what everybody really really wants to see i had a really interesting practice changing experience one time 10 or more years ago uh, a gentleman who was in his early 60s was dying at home the nurse asked for medical assessment so i went i go upstairs to the patient's bedroom I sit next to the bed, I take his wrist and start to feel his pulse. I start to do the, the medical thing that I do. And I recognize that he's actually going to die within minutes. So I say to his wife, your husband is going to die within a few minutes. You sit here, you take his hand. I said to one daughter, adult daughter, get your sister, got a sister. I step back and um, in my mind, and this is the key to the story, in my mind, I thought, oh, he looks real comfortable, his breathing is good, he's very peaceful, he's very calm. Um, I don't need to get morphine and I don't need to get my Dazalam and I don't need to get, right? So in my mind, I was thinking this was very peaceful. So I stood back, a few minutes go by, he dies, tears, uh, very upset, naturally enough. After t 10 minutes or so, the patient's wife turns to me and she says, was that peaceful? Wow. And I thought, gosh, how is she going to know that it's peaceful unless I tell her that it's peaceful? Mm. Because this is her husband, father yes. of children who's dying. This is a, this is a you know, terrible thing for her. She's never seen anybody die before. So ever since then, when I'm at the bedside of somebody who is dying, I'm actually very clear to say to the family, Oh, you know, your loved one seems very peaceful to me. Does he seem peaceful to you? What are you noticing? I talk about the changes of breathing. I talk about the, you know, cir circulation getting mm -hmm. cooler. I talk about all of the things to expect to sort of uh, put it in the context of what death looks like. Uh, I say to families, oh, have you helped um, the nurse do a wash? Oh, yeah. 
was he comfortable during the wash? Could you turn your loved one this way and this way to sort of do a wash and change the pajamas or whatever? Oh, very, I say, that's good. That's excellent. That's a good sign. You know, sometimes if somebody's not comfortable and you try to turn them for a wash, they get all stiff and rigid. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not able to tell you what their symptoms are anymore, but you're kind of reading the body language and sort of, sort of judging somebody's comfort level in all of these sort of, all of these sort of ways. Yeah. So now I'm, yeah, part of my job is actually upfront telling people what to expect in all the different, you know, circumstances, all the different sort of contexts that I yeah, have. Because that's the, I think that's one of the, the, the biggest fears of, um, of every single human being. You know, it's true and, and to have a, a peaceful, mm. a peaceful death. Mm. And that, that's so interesting. Also, there anyone, how, how many people ask you, am I dying? What's going on with me? Oh, uh, 99% of people ask. Because um, most people want to know. I usually ask first. So I've come in, I've done an assessment. And I say, Mr. Jones, how much do you want to know about what I'm thinking? I mean, I say it. Wow. Different. That's, I say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I say it. That's super interesting. I mean, I'm being a little bit. Uh, uh, I say it a little bit better than that when yeah. I'm actually with a patient. But that's yeah. that's my gist is how much do you want to know? And 99.9% .9 of the time, a patient will say, I want to know everything. I want you to be straight up with me. So I am. Every now and again, somebody will say, talk to my son. Mm. You know, I don't want to know talk to my son. Um, do you want me to talk to your son in front of you or shall we go down the corridor and have a conversation? Someone have hear it, hear it just not directly. Some people say go down the corridor. So always checking how much somebody wants to know. That's regardless of culture, because there's an interesting thing that we have to be aware of is different ethnicities, different cultures have different ways of thinking and talking about death and dying. One of the most interesting t presentations I was ever invited to give was to um, Interpreting New Zealand, which is the agency that we use to hire interpreters. Mm -hmm. So if I've got a patient who speaks Portuguese uh -huh. <laughs> or Chinese or whatever, it, it's best practice to have an interpreter so I can really make sure that person understands what is happening. Well, that's super interesting. Okay? Uh -huh. So interpreters, they have a very difficult job but they have their own continuing education program. So one evening I went along to talk about um, communication in palliative care to the interpreter audience. So I had done a literature search on the issue and I discovered there's a controversy in the area of interpreting. Uh, do interpreters just do the words only or are the interpreters also interpreting the culture mm. of the patient and, you know, and uh, when, I, when, I, when I had a slide and when I said that, I could see the audience of 40 people, each from a different ethnicity and language and culture. Um, they, they, I could see some said, this Russian woman said, oh, it's just the words. It's just the words. You're only doing the words. And this, I think she was Samoan woman said, no, of course you're helping the doctor interpret the culture. <laughs> so I was quite interested. Um, but... Uh, I said, I'm aware that different cultures, you don't say death in front of the patient. 
You don't say that. That's not culturally appropriate. So I said, Can you remember one of those cultures? Well, the Portuguese, funnily enough. Oh, really? <laughs> because this woman in the front row put up her hand and she said, I interpret in Portuguese. And she said, There's two ways that I can say death. One I would never say in front of a patient, but there's a second way, which is, she said, is sort of a literary way of saying it. Would the, I said, would the patient understand what you're saying? Oh, yes. But it's, it's the way I would, the word I would choose. So I don't know what, how that, whether you would recognize that. But that's what, that's what she felt. There's, there's sort of a, a one way which you would never say and another way which was an acceptable. And I said, look, my objective when I'm telling some, wanting to tell somebody, wanting to convey to somebody that they could die at any time or they are dying is not, I'm not doing it for, uh, just the sake of being honest, because I know that regardless of culture and ethnicity, when somebody knows they're dying, there's stuff they want to do, there's stuff their family wants to do, mm, there's stuff their community important. and their culture need mm. to need to know and do, do you know? So I'm trying to convey what's happening, because if I don't, and the person dies, everybody's much more upset. You know, yes. the family are really upset. Mm. The, the community, they haven't had time to get, you know, what if, you know, when I say to somebody, Mr. Jones, you could die at any time, the son returns from Australia or the UK. And, you know, uh, there's a whole bunch of things that, that happen uh, uh, because that person in that family have that knowledge. If I don't say it, none of that happens. And that's far more traumatic and far more, you know, difficult. So I sometimes say the only thing worse than telling somebody they could die at any time is not telling. It's not telling. Because if I mm. don't tell them, then, you know, they don't do the things that need to, need to sort of happen. That's so interesting. Yeah, those things, normally we don't even think about it mm. and we don't mm. have mm. information about mm. it. Mm. Yeah. Another, um, I remember you, you shared a story as well and this I can relate a lot because my mom she my mom and my sister in Brazil they're both nurses and mm. in you said that, yeah. and you told us about the power of the touching also mm. when the nurse mm. touching mm. a yep. patient how yep. they just open up emotionally yep. yep yeah that is something that I've learned as a doctor from my nursing colleagues the the power of touch as a communication, uh, as a, as a way of communicating. And this, excuse me, the story I told was of a woman who, um, uh, came to see me. Um, she was a single woman. She had no, um, family. Um, she had close friends who, who supported her. Um, she came to see me we, we, we sat opposite each other. I was, you know, in the clinic room and it was all very, um, it was all very straightforward, apparently, apparent, seemingly straightforward. And that, you know, she was answering my questions, you know, back and forth and back and forth. And she was con containing her emotion and then went to the examination room where I, I just put on the blood pressure cuff, you know, that, that, that's hardly an intimate touch, but I put on the blood pressure cuff. I had the stethoscope in my ears. I was listening, you know, to the noise and she, she just, burst into tears and she said, I'm afraid I'm dying. And, you know, all sorts of stuff came out right then. And it was 
I'm sure, because we'd moved from the, you know, sitting opposite each other and the talking thing mm -hmm. to the touch, to the touch thing. Such a very, very important, very, very important. And my nursing colleagues will, they of course do washes and different sorts of things. And they, they, they feel that they, they report that that happens, you know, and that's great. And when that happens, you need to stop and acknowledge and listen. And, you know, so that's what I did with this one. I took the stethoscope out of my ears and sat next to her and then listened, you know, to mm -hmm. what she was talking about and helped her with that's that. That's super interesting. Yeah, really, really interesting. So Dr. Ian, you've been in the palliative care, palliative care in New Zealand for 15 years. 15 years. Yeah. What has been changed in New Zealand with the community towards the subject of, of death yeah. and dying? And what you'd like to see, what changes you'd like to see mm. happening the next, the next few years? Mm. That's a very big topic. Um, what is changing is the, 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 is the aging of death. Um, the demographics of New Zealand population, baby boomers like me, are all hitting the age when they're going to die. So the average age of death is increasing. The number of deaths is also increasing because that baby boom bulge is approaching, you know, the age of uh, age of dying. So I think there's going to be forty eight percent increase in the number of deaths in the next thirty years. Wow, forty eight. Very very big, mm. and. New Zealand has to prepare for that. Most of that will happen in residential care, so in nursing homes. Um, the age at which people are admitted to nursing homes is going up, so people stay in their own home till they're older. They're admitted to nursing homes older and sicker, more complicated, because over time you acquire more illnesses. So dying is getting more medically complicated because people will not just have their cancer they'll have their heart failure and their renal failure and whatever else on top of that so um, what we need is to acknowledge that change and i think that's where the conversation about communities around the person who's dying we need to support you know everyone who's helping to care for those those patients mm -hmm. um, you know we at hospice have our own sort of range of services and support and a heap of what we do now and this is one of the changing things is we support other providers who are doing the care for patients so at Timanga we've got a dynamite team of nurse specialists who go into all the residential care facilities within the hut valley and they've been doing this for 10-15 years and they're increasing the skill level of all of those nurses and the gps who are looking after and all the caregivers um, they do lots and lots and lots of education of those staff to, to sort of communication symptom control all of the sort of things they have to do to sort of deal with that so from the point of view of hospice we just do more and more and more education training people um, we have to be inventive and think creatively about how do we uh, engage with other people who are providing care. How do we, yeah, educate them? How do we support them? Mm -hmm. And this is what we call the the compassionate communities. So that's the mm. that's the work. Uh... Um, 
we're training the professional people there, but what we need to look at is the 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 the, uh, the people who are around who are not professional people who are also really involved in the care, like the family. So, like that, like I was alluding to earlier, that um, course for the caregivers that we have, where it's the loved ones who come in, and we we talk to them about how to look after their loved one. Um, there's there's the compassionate communities thing we also have to think about the volunteers um hospice couldn't function without all the volunteers in all the roles that we use volunteers for so Tamanga hospice has 500 volunteers some of whom do the biography service like emily's doing mm -hmm. some are doing direct patient care they assist in our inpatient unit some are at the shops you know, our fundraising shops, the um, op shops that are all around town, they staff the op shops. Some do the gardening, you know, at the hospice, beautiful gardens. Some do the kitchen. Some do the cleaning. Um, it's one of the things I really enjoy the most is this, we have a pofity to welcome new volunteers to the hospice where they get an introduction to hospice services. But one of the things that happens is each volunteer stands up and says, who they are, where they will be volunteering, and why they are choosing to volunteer for the hospice. And it's one of my favorite events ah, to hear super yes. what different people mm. do. And some people are retired, but that's changing too. We're getting more and more younger people, like Emily, who who want to give back. You yes. know? Even quite the, the, the last Pofuri, there was a young one from the high school down the down the hot high down the street mm -hmm. and she stood up and she said i want to volunteer for the hospice because she said i had a brother who died when he was six and i you know it was a it was a terrible event for our family it was a very difficult time but i want to uh, volunteer and give back and help in some way mm -hmm. i thought wow wow that's that, amazing. very humbling very very humbling you know to to sort of hear this and she was i think volunteering at the shops um fine Great. yeah we always talk um Emily and Emily and I, we always talk about the power of. Uh, I believe so much in, for us to to be able to engage more with our community. Mm. Being a volunteer, mm. it's a massive part of the change. So if mm. you want to change anything, I think being a volunteer, it's it's the first step. It's the most important mm. step because we're gonna be able to understand more about uh, mm. the problems that that community mm. it's it's mm. it's dealing with. Mm. I'm personally I'm volunteer at the uh, Ramataka prison. At the prison, yeah. And uh, I truly believe and I try to encourage people, um, even because when you, the power of, uh, of donate your time, it's, it, yeah. it's sometimes yeah. just one hour. It's yeah. something yeah. can make a massive change, yeah. a massive change. And I see, I see the hospice uh, shop in Karori. Mm. I see lots of young people donating their time mm. there. And, mm. and that's, that's amazing. Mm. That's really, really powerful. Mm. So Dr. Ian, now, I think this we cannot uh, <coughs> we cannot skip this this question because it's a really uh, yeah people get really emotional about this this subject in, uh, in, in especially especially in New Zealand. Um, what's your what's your opinion about uh, euthanasia? Mm. What's your views about this this topic? It is highly topical because David Seymour's end of life choice bill is currently being debated in Parliament. Right it's, now, yeah. Um, heading up to the third reading vote. Mm -hmm. um, I'm opposed to euthanasia. I'm opposed to a change in the law in New Zealand. Um, my position is the same as 
the Hospice New Zealand position, the um, sort of national hospice organization's position statement, you know, opposes a change in law because it's not going to benefit our patients. Um, I have a number of concerns. The law has no, I think, no protections for vulnerable people. And I don't care who you are, when you're diagnosed with a terminal illness, you are a vulnerable person. Um, the, 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 David Seymour says that there's adequate protections, but when you read the legislation, when you go line by line by line through the legislation, um, there's, very, there's nothing which protects um, against coercion. Somebody might be coerced into saying yes to euthanasia when they wouldn't want it. How does that work? You know, in a bunch of different ways. I think you can get, uh, um, people can internalize this feeling that they're a burden because that's what we hear very commonly. Uh, I'm a burden. That's what a patient will say. I feel like I'm a burden. I want to end my life because I'm a burden. I don't feel they're a burden. Their disease is very burdensome. That's true. But I say to patients, you're not a burden. You know, what, what I feel the response, the compassionate response is supporting that person to, to live rather than um, to, end, to end their life. Um, there's a story, that an anonymized story that I've told a number of times in the context of euthanasia about uh, that, that illustrates the um, risk to me. I went to see a patient, a woman in her early 80s who had lung cancer, cared for by her husband at home, also in his 80s. She, um, he said, as soon as we walked into the room, my wife wants euthanasia. My wife wants euthanasia. In fact, he wouldn't stop talking about how his wife wanted euthanasia. So I turned to his wife, the patient, and I said, what are your feelings about euthanasia? Tell me why you're... She didn't say she wanted euthanasia. She didn't say she didn't... She, she, she was silent on the topic. A point came in the... Um, my, my, what I do when I go visit somebody. You know, I talk first. And then I took her to the bedroom because I had to do a physical examination. So when I was in the bedroom doing the physical examination, separate from her husband, I asked again, what are your feelings about euthanasia? And she wouldn't say one way or the other. Came back to the room, wrapped up, came up with a plan of care to deal with her pain and whatever. Walking out to the car, two adult daughters follow me to the car who say, our mother do, does not want euthanasia. She's never been a supportive euthanasia. But our father, who has been an abusive man to our mother for their whole marriage, um, uh, she would never say anything to contradict him uh, in front of him or even not in front of him because that's, that's her history, mm. you know. And I thought to myself, you know, we live in a spousal abuse, elder abuse are all serious problems. I think euthanasia just, there's a risk, huge sort of risk there. Um, and, and we need to protect, we need to protect uh, protect people, mm -hmm. vulnerable people. Um, I think euthanasia is also unnecessary. There's a lot of misconceptions about what is and what is not euthanasia. Euthanasia is where uh, um, you know, the, the clinician, the doctor, the nurse practitioner, whoever, deliberately ends the life of the patient. If somebody says, oh, I don't want any more chemotherapy, 
that's not euthanasia. That's within the ethical and legal framework that exists already to sort of refuse treatment. If somebody says, I don't want that surgery that is being offered, that's also not euthanasia. That's perfectly legitimate. If somebody's on a ventilatory machine to support their breathing and without it they would die, if they say, turn off that machine, that's not euthanasia. That's within the rights of any one of us already to say, no, I don't want that as part of my treatment anymore. People can refuse, you know, the CPR. You know, I don't want to have my heart started if it's stopped. Uh, I don't want to take that antibiotic. All of those things, those choices that anybody can make, that's not euthanasia. That's, you know, so I think it's actually unnecessary. My experience, real requests for euthanasia are very, very, very uncommon. Um, so it's like changing the law where it's a very small, very small number of patients. Requests like a patient says to me, uh, if I had a gun, I would shoot myself. Or, doctor, don't you have a pill I could take? That's not that uncommon. But when I ask that person, well, what's that about? Tell me about that. Why do you feel that way? Uh, you know, I do what... Any patient who talked to me about suicide, you know, we, we have to address their suicidal thinking. Uh, end-of-life patient, non-end-of-life patient, you still have to. When I address it with my patients the, and then deal with it, whatever the issue is, that request disappears. Wow. Very, very, wow. very uncommon. So my wife went to law school many years ago and she, you know, taught me the the expression or the, the sort of adage, hard cases make bad law. So there are all the hard cases that make the front page of the paper, you know, and there, <laughs> so are, hard, there are hard cases. And I'm not saying they're not. They are really, really difficult and really, mm. really hard things. My heart goes out to those patients. Um, but trying to build a law around those hard cases is really hard. It's much better if it stays within the courts and the legal framework. So that's another one of the points that I want to make about euthanasia is it should never, ever be doctors, ever. Um, you know, our first do no harm is sort of the first rule of, of medical practice. Uh, uh, taking somebody's life is the ultimate in harm. It should never be. We should never be the ones to um, do the, uh, you know, um, uh, make the decision about whether, or investigation of whether there's coercion, it should never ever do the act. A couple of years ago, there was a journal article. The title was, Two Lawyers and a Technician. So if society wants to go down the track of euthanasia, two lawyers to make the decision, the technician to do the deed, take it completely away from the medical profession, because it is not a medical act. And that's one of the bring it back to the Hospice New Zealand position mm -hmm. statement, it's not something that we will be doing as part of our care for patients. Mm -hmm. uh, patients already are fearful that that's what we do. Do you know? When I prescribe wow, morphine, so when I prescribe morphine, yeah. mm. patients are all afraid that the morphine is going to kill them or end their life. You know? you know, what I'm really doing is cranking up the morphine to kill somebody. No, I'm increasing morphine if I need to, to take away the pain that they have not to end their life. Um, mm -hmm. There was an interesting uh, research study done in the United States. Patients newly diagnosed with cancer of the lung. 
were randomized, you know, best kind of scientific evidence, randomized to two groups. The one group got the regular cancer care, and the other group got regular cancer care plus palliative care. And the main finding of the study was, of course, that the quality of life of the patients who got regular cancer care plus palliative care was better. But a significant and unexpected finding was which group do you thought lived, do you think lived longer? Wow. The group who got regular mm -hmm. cancer care plus palliative care actually lived longer. So what I'm doing is not shortening anybody's life, you know. When they looked at why did that, why was that? Well, it may be because the patients who had palliative care had sort of conversations about their choices and they didn't go down and take that risky chemotherapy or whatever. But but that was a significant finding that they actually had a longer wow, that's super lifespan interesting. with a better quality of life. Mm. So So Doctor, do you do you think because we are we want to have control of everything, right? Mm. This is one of the human conditions. Mm. You know, we want to have control of everything. And when we don't have control, our tendencies to mm. have some anxiety and freaking out. So do you think this law, it's just to give that peace of mind for some people? What's the reason? Why do you think this has been pushing so hard, um, this subject in, in our society? Yeah. I think you're right. There, there's this people who are not in that position yet want to control, want to control everything. Living wishes, we, we have a phrase in my business, you know, living wishes are not dying wishes. And we have seen over and over and over again, <laughs> somebody's so... mind is changed mm. once they are in that position. And I've had pa a patient who was, uh, staunch advocate she was a signed up member of the euthanasia society who once she received her own diagnosis of a terminal illness not once she wanted to live longer like everybody wow. else she wanted to live mm. longer that's so interesting completely changed mm. her mind um there's a very um it, it sort of gets back to your point or our point about the social nature of dying so that sort of individual being in control versus accepting that, you know, they're now dying and accepting the support from everybody around them to see how that, to see how that goes. Um, I won't be able to remember the quote exactly, but I used it in the presentation that I gave um, to Combat Room. Quote from Martin Crow the cricketer who died of, I think he had a leukemia or he had a lymphoma. Mm -hmm. um, and the quote is a beautiful quote because he talks about uh, the cancer that he got came to him as a friend. And that's, that's I'm, that part I am remembering as a friend that was there to teach him what was important. And what was important was to be surrounded by love. And I thought, mm. here we have a blokey New Zealand cricketer, you know, articulating this on a national newspaper talking about what it meant to him. And he said it had been a two year process, you know, uh, for him. So, so he, he talked about the, the, um, he didn't use the word vulnerability, but he talked about being open. And that was part of the experience was to sort of, his life was sort of open to the love that, yes. that was the most important thing. And that's what I see. I see that. 
And that's a hard, uh, that's a hard thing to convey, to tell stories about. Because those are person, people's private personal stories. Yes. You know, I can't share mm -hmm. a lot of that stuff because it's their business. Mm -hmm. But here was Martin Crow sharing that, that with him. So that's why I use, that's why I use that mm -hmm. quote. Because it is something I see time and time and time and time again. Yeah, the idea of uh, we should not be afraid of death, but afraid mm. of not living our lives. You know, mm. That's, that's mm. the mm. most powerful thing. So, Dr. Ian, how, how do we start a conversation about death and dying? Mm. So what's, your, what's your advice to if you have someone in your family or even between couples? And mm. what's, how mm. do we start this conversation? Yeah. It's really hard, and you just have to, in a way, just do it. But where where an event has happened, like somebody's admitted to hospital, and you know, there's a, you just, you just, this is an opportunity where where the emotions are all sort of, you know, heightened. That is an opportunity to sort of talk about, uh, uh, you know, what the meaning is, you know, and and, and trying to make plans. Um, where somebody's, um, yeah, admission to hospital, making of a diagnosis, you've had the appointment with the oncologist or whatever, any one of these steps, you just can take the bit between the teeth and actually um, raise the question. For those people who are not in that category, there's the whole advanced care planning um, online framework, the New Zealand advanced care planning framework um, if you just put advanced care planning New Zealand, you'll go to a website, which is a whole um, well thought out stepwise um, document that takes anybody at any stage of life through those sorts of questions that you need to ask yourself about what would my preference be if I got a terminal illness, where would I want to die or whatever. It doesn't talk just about death, but it's also, you know, your wills and powers of attorney and who's going to make decisions and all of those other important things. But it's a it's a step by step kind of guide that one of the main uh, uh, points is you can work this all out yourself, but then you really need to share it with your family, your loved ones, share it with your health providers as well. Hospitals can upload somebody's advanced care plan so the hospital will have a record of what somebody's think thinking is. You know, uh, so that's one sort of way. But mm -hmm. part of it is you just have to, you just have to be brave. <laughs> you know. Uh, yes, that's awesome. Yeah. So, Doctor Ian, um, yeah, your job—you have such a hard, hard job. And mm. Every single day you deal with grief, with loss. How do you keep your mental health in check? Yeah. That's a very important, a very good question to ask. Um, I do lots of different things. Um, within the many um, health provider services, there's recognition that this kind of work has an impact on you emotionally. So right off, there's sort of the health culture accepts that there's going to be an impact. Um, and that's increasing. So rather than a kind of push it all away, it's not going to have an impact. There's a recognition that it's going to have an impact. So my organization and many, many organizations um, will pay for um, 
what we call supervision. So you, you, you go to a person, a professional person trained outside of your workplace on work time and paid for by your work, mm-hmm. where you talk about the emotional impact that the work is having on your, on you. And that can be, ideally that's done regularly. So I go actually once a month to see a guy who's a psychologist and I talk about various ways that my job is impacting on me. And it's important to make that a regular practice because when things are good, he knows me when things are good. And when things are hard, he also knows me when things are hard. And he's sort of seen me in both sort of ups and downs. And that's, that's a really important thing. Um, we also encourage sort of reflective practice, which is uh, using whatever creative um, creative medium, you know, helps you reflect on these things. So for me, it was music. I alluded to, you know, my music mm-hmm. sort of thing. Different people do poetry or read poetry. Different people do art. Some people, it's nature. They're, everybody has their own sort of way of... So for me, it was a seminar that I went to in Hobart in Tasmania. Um, that was, the theme was exploring hope and meaning. And we were all invited to bring something to that seminar that on that topic of exploring hope and meaning. So that's when I started to put together the song, what I call the sort of the, my songbook, my collection of black American music that is all about grief, loss and healing and presented it. So that's a reflective practice sort of exercise. It's sort of, I listened to heaps of music and I the lyrics and I read around the subject of black music and, um, the, 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 for, for black Americans, the individual death is absolutely embedded within their community and their culture. And that you see that over and over and over again. So that was an important sort of reflective practice thing that I was doing on my own to sort of support that. And then there's the physical things that are real important. You have to be take, like everybody, you have to take care of your physical body, fitness, not too much caffeine, no alcohol, whatever, whatever, like mm-hmm. all of the stuff that, that, and and physical exercise and well like i said when you start to get 50 it needs to get it's really difficult it's really really challenging and really really hard that's interesting this it's one of the reasons why you choose brazilian jiu-jitsu as well of course right Mm, because the fitness is fabulous Mm -hmm. so dr yeah um if someone it's listening to this it's listening to this podcast right now and would like to become a, a volunteer at the hospice, mm. what's the steps to become a volunteer? And what's your advice about someone who is thinking about mm. to become a volunteer? Just do it. All hospices will have a volunteer manager. Um, our volunteer manager is a paid person who, whose job it is to coordinate the volunteers. So you just make a phone call and arrange to come in and meet that volunteer manager there is a screening process you have to do you know like everywhere police checks and all that sort of stuff but she'll speak he or she will speak to you about what it is you're wanting to do and then match you with the 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 things in the hospice that can be doing you know um Mm -hmm. because uh at the moment what's the proportions um it's something like uh, the hospice need uh, around i don't know six million per year something like that to Different hospitals, depending on the size of the, yeah. Mary Potter's, of course, a bigger population. It's a bigger organization than mm-hmm. Te Munga Hospice. So I think for us at Te Munga, 
well, I know for us at Timanga, our budget is um, about one third of our budget comes mm-hmm. from fundraising. Mary Potter, it's a higher percentage. I think they're more like 40%, 45% of their budget has to be fundraised. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's variation depending on historical contracts and stuff. So yeah, big need, big, big, big need. That's awesome. So Dr. Eden, Ian, um, what's your, if someone it's, <laughs> it's, Sorry. it's going through to something, have it, someone they love in a, in a, in a situation of dying right now. What's, what's your, what's your advice for someone who is dealing, um, with some, some grief right now? Mm. Um, to find the help that you need, you know, there is help out there, uh, I mean, hospices, one of our um, big value-added things is our fa- what we call our family support team. So we've got counselors, we have an art therapist, we have a music therapist, Maori support person, spiritual care. I mean, there's all people with training and skills and experience to sort of help support. Um, but, you know, you can go to your GP, you know, find whatever help is out there it's a bit like you know the mental health you know encourage just to sort of talk about it don't try to keep it all into yourself you know seek the help what can your friends do whatever is needed to support you um and that's where we're getting back to the compassionate communities you know if you're the friend of somebody who's in that sort of situation you think what what can i do to support them can i bring them a meal? Can I mow their lawn? Can I do their laundry? Can I clean their toilet? Can I, you know, whatever, whatever practical thing, uh, or maybe you've got a relationship where you can talk to them. Maybe you don't. You have to think yourself, "Mm, where am I in the, in this relationship here? What can I best do to support? Um, Am I answering your question? Yes, yes, for sure. Yeah. So, Dr. Ian, thank you so much for your time and for your knowledge and for your service for our community as well. Yeah, it's always inspirational to talk to you and I really, really appreciate your time again to come to the Rise of the Super Being once more. So You're welcome. I think it's I think what you're doing is a is a great um, addition to what you do with the combat room in the physical sense. I think this Rise of the Super Being is an excellent sort of expansion of what it is that you're trying to achieve. Mm. I really appreciate it. Uh, Thank you so much. Mm.